Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today for the second to last episode of season one of Saving Face, a podcast dedicated to breaking the stigma around sharing hard to tell stories. I'm Ida and I'll be your host for the series. For our first season, we're asking eight creatives to dive into some of their most difficult personal experiences, many of which are rooted in trauma and shame. Throughout each episode, we'll explore the ways these experiences have impacted their work and give our guests the space to reframe these stories as moments of growth, forgiveness, and love. Today, we're speaking with Mariah Green. My name is Mariah Green. I am the founder of Greenpeace, uh, which is a plant styling and consulting company here in New York City, hopefully one day all over the world. I work with plants and I foster relationships and I see growth between people and their plants. That's what I do. All over the internet, Mariah is known as a plant doctor, a title she coined herself while preparing for her interview with Good Morning America during her first real feature about her business Greenpeace. She started the business after moving to New York, but since then she's been featured in publications like the New York Times and Vogue for her groundbreaking innovative work throughout the city. I came to New York in 2017. I'd finished undergrad in DC. I went to George Washington U. I came here, I got into grad school at the Bank Street College of Education. And so I had a couple of months before school started and this was my first like big girl apartment. And so naturally I was like, I'm going to go to TJ Maxx and I'm going to get a lot of plants. So I got all these plants and I brought them into my space within six weeks, like 75% of them were dead. And I was like, okay, I knew I was going to get scammed in New York, but I genuinely did not think it would be by plants. Like this man gave me crappy <laughs> plants. So I went back to the plant shops I got them from. And then over time, I just like come to find out that you have to have the right plants for your space. Um, mm. And so I had bought like a cactus and I was north facing, oh. which is like a faux pas. Like, no, like now we know like, oh, you have a cactus and you're north facing. So basically before this was common knowledge now, I guess, um, I started decorating my friend's spaces. Like this was just sort of like a side hustle. And then a friend of mine pulled me aside and was like, okay, this is New York. Like everyone has a side hustle and you make money off of it. With most of her academic experience in education, running a business was a whole new territory for Mariah. So I was like, okay, I'll charge 20 an hour. Like that's making it in America, making 20 an hour. Like what more could you want? And you make your own schedule. My first like probably 20 clients I was breaking even or like pulling from my savings because I didn't know how much things cost or like yeah I was really really trying to like I had never run a business I was teaching third grade so um my business knowledge was limited but I knew how to teach people so because that's what I was studying so over time it just evolved and that same friend gave me a budget to do his space I decorated it up with all the right plants for his space and then I don't know how they heard about it, but the New York Post caught on to it. And that was my first like big break where it sort of took off. Turning her side hustle into a real business came with some growing pains, especially when it came to pricing her services or navigating feelings that she wasn't good enough to do the work. Growing up, we're taught a lot of things, but not really how to run our own business or advocate for ourselves. How do we ask for money? How do we know how much to charge? Like, I think that's very unique to kind of like the rising generation that we see who we're all freelancers, we're all entrepreneurs, but like with our parents' generations or even our generation, that's much less like, that's much more of a new thing, you know? I'm wondering how did you end up navigating that and like, how did you kind of find the things that you know now? 
It was really hard. I mean, like I mentioned before, it was a lot of breaking even or tapping into my savings. And um, I mean, at a certain point I was thinking, okay, I need to buy every plant so that I can know how to care for it when it comes time for me to witness this in someone's face or to suggest it. And so I'm sure if I kept every receipt, I don't even know how much I've spent on plants just for, I didn't want to read about it in a book. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to see it grow. I wanted to kill it so I could know what not to do. Mm -hmm. And so as far as what that looks like with money, I mean, I could imagine this being so much easier with startup money. Mm. Um, (laughs) And I feel that way today too, but to know that this is mine, a hundred percent mine, this, I don't know if this will always be the case, but, um, yeah, I was navigating a lot on my own. And it's it's funny, like you brought up parents and like generations before us. This was my like my little plant thing to my mom. Not that there was any shade or anything, but to my family, it was like, how's the plant thing going like on the side as I right. was going to school? And like whole time I'm like, I can't tell them that I'm like about to be in the Times or Good Morning America or whatever. I wanted them to see it. Um, and I also didn't even know that that was happening, but I had this vision. I knew that it was going somewhere. So I wouldn't be dedicated to doing it in between grad school and student teaching if I didn't think it would go somewhere. You have to be crazy to like want another job on the side that pays 20 an hour. It just, yeah, I believed in it. I believed it was bigger than me. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I mean, I think that's the main thing about a passion, right? Like we dedicate ourselves to it or invest in it regardless of like what we think the outcome might be. It's it's something that like we feel strongly about like for us and like the importance of it and I mean clearly it's paid off (laughs) I mean (laughs) now like you've got your own business like it's really growing and I mean yeah so it goes to show that like things are always super dynamic and changing because you're super right like I just had this convo with somebody else um where we were talking about specifically in Asian immigrant communities how there's a lot of emphasis on stability and trying to create stability in our lives, whether that's through um, our professions or our family life or whatever that might be, um, and how like other pursuits can sometimes not be seen equally because of the fact that it doesn't give you that stability. Um, yeah, and it sounds a little bit like what you're talking about. Yeah, I've experienced something extremely similar in that um... – Like I was taught, you go to school, you get your degree, and then uh, I was the first in my family to complete college. And so once you get the degree, like you can do whatever the hell you want. It felt like, but like, please do something constructive. And so then I got into grad school and it was like, okay, amazing. And then I was like, you know what? I want to do this side hustle, but it wasn't, it didn't line up to what I thought it was going to be because I thought you had to study something and like have this certification in order to um, consider yourself a professional. And I think that's where a lot of my imposter syndrome comes from over time, because I'll run into the occasional client or person who loves what I do. And they're like, did you study botany? Did you study architecture? Did you? And I was like, I, I can teach a third grader, like how to read, (laughs) just like anyone had how to read from scratch or put a lesson plan together. And so those are the moments where I discount a lot of my work and my expertise, but in that same that same idea, it's the same reason that I'm charging what I'm charging because I taught myself, I've killed thousands of dollars worth of plants so that I know what not to do. And so it's just this constant inner battle of unlearning what I was taught. And it's not like I have like a family full of haters. That's not the case. It's very much that this is what they know when you're learning to, to accept the truths from that. And also, um, 
dissect what it is that's going to actually move you further. Mm-hmm, definitely. And like, I think that imposter syndrome is super common among communities of color as well, just because like, a lot of times, like, we don't see people like us in professions that maybe we want to do or are passionate about. Like, I didn't know Asian people could be writers for most of my life. Like, you know, I just didn't think that was a thing. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about like, kind of like, what the right ways there are to imagine um, solutions around that. Because I think the answer that a lot of us end up coming to is like representation, right? But sometimes Mm -hmm. like, I feel like that almost isn't it. Like, I just feel like sometimes it's doing it yourself, you know? I agree. And I, I mean, my, I studied education and literacy. And so I'm always, my mind runs through that sort of that sort of thinking. And the thing that comes to mind is books, good books are either mirrors or windows, right? We might've like all heard this phrase, but like, it's either a mirror where you see yourself reflected in this story or this author illustrator story, or it's a window into some place you've never been. And so that would be representation. But for me, I think unless we're constantly seeing equal mirrors and windows, it doesn't really matter. Um, Mm. If you're just seeing all these windows, it's like this distant fairy tale where like this exists for someone else and not me. And if you're seeing all of these mirrors, you're just in this clouded bubble of like, this is my world and anything else that deviates from that is not true or helpful. And no, neither of those things are true. So I think like you just said, like you just have to do it. And the the only real way to see equal mirrors and windows at the same time is to do it yourself. Mm, yeah, that's that's awesome. I never knew about the mirrors and windows kind of really. Like yeah, yeah. That's how we as teachers are just every. I don't know. That's how we determine what a good book is. So when it's story time, we used to have to decide: is this a mirror? Like, um, is this the main character in the book? living in Bed-Stuy in a brownstone, is this something the kids can relate to? Or is this a fairy tale? Or is this about someone living on a farm in Nebraska? That would be a window. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an, an like, obviously very accurate way of looking at, like, works of art, yeah. for instance. But it's true, because no matter which way you're approaching it, there is still that distance to bridge, right? Like, because exactly. even if you're seeing the experience mirrored, it's still limiting. Or even exactly. if you're seeing the window, there's still a bridge to cross. So mm-hmm. it depends how many times you're looking in the mirror or like how often you're looking out the window. Both of those things could be bad. They have to exist in a balance. Much of that knowledge comes from Mariah's time at grad school, where she earned her master's in general education and literacy. But while her degree was focused on helping people learn, Greenpeace has helped her embark on a journey of unlearning as well. You touched very briefly on like unlearning and like the things that you felt like you had to unlearn in order to get to where you are today. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, the unlearning is, it's tough. I feel like some days are filled with unlearning and unlearning is my soft way of saying like failures. Because like we don't fail, we're we're above that. Twitter says we don't fail. We're unlearning our trauma or the things we know that aren't true. Um, but yeah, and like more of a day to day lens. Um, for me, it's, I mean, telling myself that I am qualified to be here in this space. Whoever says I'm not qualified is either a hater or it would discount what they know to be true. 
So unlearning, I think, is really rooted in being so, you have to be crazy to unlearn. You have to be so confident in that the truths that you were told by the time, like I'm now 25, I have to discount all the 25 years that I've heard something was true. And it's not aligning with what I now know. You have to be crazy. Right. It's part of the process. Mm -hmm. What are some of those things that like you feel like you were most empowered to unlearn? That I'm supposed to be, that I should be grateful um, over the past year or two years. I feel like that's been a theme in my life. Like, okay, so I was so freaking excited to be in, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like, uh, I won't air anyone out. But like, there's so many instances where there's this huge thing that I've been looking forward to. I'm on this podcast or I'm on this platform or this publication or whatever. And then I get there and I, I get it done. And I think Michelle Obama talked a little bit about this. Like you get into the room and you realize all these people aren't really that smart. But as a black woman, you're supposed to just be grateful that you're there and you made it and you got the stamp of approval. Um, And you're just happy to be at the table and to have a Mm -hmm. seat at the table. When in reality, this table fucking sucks. There's no AC. (laughs) Everyone here is really boring. Your breath smells like I want to be somewhere else. I want to build my own table. And... I'm grateful to be here, but this is not my end-all be-all because I grew up believing that you have to be twice as good. What's the saying again? Twice as good, but half as... You, everyone gets it. They've been there. They've heard it if you've come from a similar background. But you've got to be, oh, you've got to be twice as good to get half as much. Yes, um, right. My dad would like hammer into us all the time. And I was like, what does that even mean? And as I got older, I was like, oh, I have to yeah literally do that and so some of the things that I've had to unlearn have been that that's a responsibility but it's also not like I put that pressure on myself right right of okay make sure you meet their expectations so that you can get a seat at the table and then you can blow it out of the water and then you can make them charge you money like it's such a damaging cycle so not only am I unlearning that but I'm also you can't just break something down and then replace it with nothing, right? Like as Americans, American culture is like, we want to dismantle the system. You can ask anyone in the room what we should replace it with and they might not have an answer, but we just know that this isn't working. Right. And so how I try to live my life is by the idea of, okay, I'm unlearning this. What is the thing that I want to learn? I try to think in positive. So if someone's like, you're not qualified to run this business mm. um, because you didn't study botany, I'm unlearning that and I'm replacing it with, I have killed more plants than you can imagine. I now know what to do. I can't think of any more expertise than killing something multiple times and then seeing it live and knowing what you did. So Mm -hmm. I try to replace negatives with positives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those examples are super powerful because in some ways also like, it's not a responsibility, right? Like those things that we're taught, like you have to be twice as good to get half as much, like, it is kind of like a radical act in a lot of ways to not give twice as much. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like to yeah, give what you give. Right. Yes. And like yeah. be like, that's enough. And like that should be enough. And like ask for that to be enough and have people respect that boundary and also accept that and respect that. And I think like we're starting to see a lot more of those conversations happen, you know, the last couple of years, especially in terms of labor, what is recognized as labor and, you know, how we give it, how we receive it, all of that in exchange. But yeah, I don't know. I think like this space is so rapidly progressing and constantly changing with like all the things like I don't even realize like I have 
these kind of like learnings inculcated in me from such a young age, you know? And so it's really exciting to see like our generation kind of rise up and be like, actually, yeah, like I know my shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's exciting, but it's also scary too, right? And I talk about it being a responsibility, but at the same time, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel like I carry the responsibility daily and I'm proud to have the responsibility because if I zoom out, it's very, I very much think of it as what can I do to make sure that another black woman behind me will not have to go through the same shitty process. So in that regard, I don't mind the responsibility, but having those tough conversations and having to like stand up for your worth day in, day out and like give twice as much to get half, like it's annoying and it sucks. But when I think about the person behind me, I'm like, okay, right. You won't have to go through that. Right. Hopefully. Like there's an end goal, like in terms of what you're paving for the future. And yeah, I, exactly. I forget that all the all the fucking time. <laughs> I'm, I'm just talking shit because I fully was telling myself that I <laughs> have no business sending an email. But yeah, it comes <laughs> and goes in waves. I'm like, yeah, you're the shit today. It's a city girl's day. And then other days where I'm like, this isn't maybe you should go back to teaching. It really it goes everywhere. I think it's super humanizing, though, for even someone as, like, accomplished as you to be sharing this stuff because people people don't see that, you know? I think, like, a lot of us see, like, what we put out um, on social media and beyond, and it's very, like, highlight reel-esque. And I know there's been a lot of convo around that stuff, but still, like, in terms of success stories, in terms of what we do accomplish, I think it's it's so important to remember that even for people who are high performing, high achieving, it doesn't matter. Like you still battle with the same exact things, you know? I'd argue that it's even more important than the actual achievement. It's showcasing how you got there. And I think that's what makes me so, social media, I can live without, but it's the reason that I'm so engaged in my story and taking everyone along on the process from me spilling soil on my shoes to missing my Uber to like, being in the negative when I need to purchase a plant that I don't have money for, like those are all parts that should be showcased so that when the next person goes through that, you're, it's not a reason to quit. Right. Mm. Like it's like the funny saying of like drip is forever and (laughs) like money, like it's just so dumb, but it's like, you have to, in your mind, believe in this. You have to be so crazy to believe in it and keep going, but you also want to be able to showcase that for the people behind you. And that's the responsibility part. Something Mariah did have to learn, however, were the logistics of running a business. And because her practice boomed so quickly, she spent a lot of the time since Greenpeace's origins securing its business foundations. I'm now, over the past two years, I've been working backwards, so to speak. So I was like, oh yeah, I do need a website. Oh, I do need a title. I need business cards. I need an email. Oh shit, I just now got an LLC. Like you'd think it's kind of premature, so oh, you I'm just learning got everything. One. I just got an LLC, like, it's been, I think it's officially in June, it'll be a year. Oh, wow. Oh my God, if the IRS hears, whatever, we're moving on. You didn't know. It's different. I did not know. Yeah, I didn't IRS know. I also was know. making 20 an hour. You guys are going to come for me. Whatever. <laughs> they have bigger fish to fry, like, or they, they should. They should have bigger fish to fry. Don't, like, we could do a whole episode on the IRS because <laughs> I just paid taxes yesterday. <laughs> Logistics have been one part of the process for Mariah, but she's also learned a lot of lessons and overcome challenges as a Black woman entrepreneur in this space as well. I can speak to the fact that it lives within me. I feel that 
this specific challenge exists and it's I have this fear of being the bitter black woman or the not grateful. Anytime I say something that's I'm disagreeing with someone or um, recommending something else or just voicing my opinion, I have this internal dialogue of am I coming off as abrasive, aggressive or mm. any of these things um, when in reality, if like a white male said it, it's like, oh, he's so smart. He made this recommendation. He's making everyone's lives easier. But as soon as I'm like the cost of a pot, we could do a terracotta pot and it's $25, but I think it would be nicer if we got a ceramic pot and it would be 75 or like, okay, well now you're just running me up for my money. Like, no, I just want the aesthetic of your space to come together. Like, I promise you, I've thought about this and not trying to take your money through terracotta pots. So <laughs> I, I think I have this like internal, I won't call it a conflict, this internal dialogue consistently. Um, that I have with myself so that I'm prepared when it happens with someone else. It's like when you're trying to go to sleep and you think about all the shitty things you did that day yeah. and no one actually cares. It's like that in your mind. Totally, totally. Yeah, I see that. I Sometimes like our own inner critic is the worst one, right? Oh my God, yeah. And I, it's the worst and the best one because I've had so many opportunities to quit and every reason to quit. And I don't know who that girl is that's like, we're gonna keep it going, but it just keeps rolling yeah so i mean kind of like after all of this growth and experience that you've had over the last i don't know couple years now what do you feel like success means to you i hate that question why would you ask me that? <laughs> what does success means mean to me success i said this so before i i think it was the first year of the business and this is like me accepting Venmo payments. So when I say the business, I say that loosely, but um, uh, success to me then was my children not needing a guarantor. It's a very mm. general idea, but I just felt like as the business was growing, I was making so much freaking money on paper and I had the notoriety and the credibility or whatever. And then the thing in New York City that just kept pulling me down was I... I been through so many apartment struggles and I've even like suing my landlord. Um, and so I've learned that NYC is a shitty place to rent. But the other thing that I learned was, um, oh shit, I forgot where I was going because of so much trauma. Oh, uh, my, um, my kids not needing a guarantor. And so I was making all this money and had all the publications and notoriety. And literally I never say this, but like you can Google me, but I could not get an apartment because I didn't have credit and I didn't have anyone in my family that oh. made 80 times the rent. And so I just felt like, what the hell does it mean to be an individual and successful like person and make it like I'm not successful until I can find a place to live. This doesn't make any sense. And so um, for me, that was the stamp of success. My kids being able to depend on me for whatever it is they need. Now that like comes with its own difficulties, right? Like I don't, it's a pressure I put on myself to mm -hmm. like make a fuck ton of money and be able to support myself. And then I also have to reckon with the fact that like my parents are just are not available to be that support for me. And it, it's crazy because it's not even like you need money or any other accolades. I just need you to understand credit and to have financial literacy and all the things that they don't know. So that's something that I really, really struggle with. That was my definition of success. I think it's evolved, but it's very much rooted in extending my like family, my lineage and 
being the first to not set an example, but that they can depend on for the really shitty things in the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I think what you're saying, like credit, financial literacy, those are all things that are very difficult to learn, right? Like there's so many yeah. barriers to accessing that kind of information. And the structures are set up that way so that they're like that. They're not made to be easy in the slightest. Exactly. And I, I also just hate the idea that my success is rooted in this. My definition of success is rooted in this idea that's meant for me to fail. Like, how fucked is that? Right. But I think the bigger picture, if I zoom out, is the fact that I want to, I want people to be able to depend on me um, with more than just my words and what I have access to. I just, I would like for the person behind me to have it easier, whether, or in front of me, which would be my kids, or the next person to come along who's starting a business. Mm-hmm. Um, any way that I can be an example of a good thing that grew, plant fun. Um, I think that would be success for me. A lot of that desire comes from Mariah's own struggles with finding an apartment in New York City. Since I've moved to New York, I've been, I want to say in like six or seven apartments in the past three to four years. Oh Um, my goodness. No, four years, I think. Um, Not all because of some traumatic event. Like we all have like shitty roommates and just like, I don't want to be here. I've outgrown this space or I'm moving. But um, one in particular is I moved into this apartment with my boyfriend at the time. And we um, moved, it was this brand new shiny apartment, brand new appliances. It just looked like the best thing. And we got a deal on it. Now, as a New Yorker, if you've been here for a couple years, brand new and shiny and deal, you don't take it. We took it. Um, And fast forward, pretty much the whole apartment was in a legal space. Um, There were water lines crossing electricity. There was a gas leak. All these things we didn't know. If you were to literally knock down the wall, in short, fast forward, so many fines from the city. We end up, all we wanted to do was get out of this apartment. We didn't have a dime to our name. um, And we ended up settling before we had to actually go to court because they realized that their backs were against the wall. But I was 22, 23. um, And my boyfriend at the time was too. And we were fighting this like 40 year old couple that lived right above us that was looking for a young couple to move into this apartment that they could take advantage of and just get money. Um, That's crazy. It's crazy. But what's even crazier is the fact that once we settled and got this like lump sum of money after paying like our like crappy lawyer and all of that that was the same money i used to get my llc and my business cards and all of this stuff so i had i not gone through that experience literally we were in a hotel we were living in the best western when i went on good morning america because we had just settled that whole case oh my goodness wow nobody would have any idea that is any idea, right? I literally, I've never, I think that's the most exhausted I've ever felt in my entire life. I was experiencing the highest level of highs and then going home to the lowest level of lows with our stuff all wet and just trying to figure out where, what hotel we're going to live in. I, I like, I feel that when you say that, you know what I mean? Like, I really can see that. And like, I just, It's crazy because at the moment, I'm sure nobody even thought that, you know, like based on the fact that you were appearing on Good Morning America, like the business is taking off, all of that. And then meanwhile, like you're really dealing with this intense trauma underneath of like, not like, I think housing insecurity is one of the biggest facets of safety. And I mean, safety 
you know, in every sense of that word that like we don't talk about and like we don't like really acknowledge in ways that we should. And like having that be kind of up in the air, like at a moment when there's more motion on the other side, like I can't even imagine how you navigated that. And I think now that I even like talk about both of these things back to back, I never realized the correlation, but maybe that's where my definition of success comes from and my kids not needing a guarantor because it was so successful. Everything is great right now. I don't have access to a space to live because I don't know anyone in my family that makes 80 times 2,000 a month. Like that's just not who has that. I mean, apparently a lot of people do, but um, it's just not. So yeah, I felt very insecure then because I'm like, this is, this isn't adding up. I'm on Good Morning America. I'm in New York Times. I'm doing all of these things. But when I go home, I'm, I'm not even going home. I'm either going to a hotel or we're like shaking out our stuff because it's all wet and we're arguing with our landlords upstairs who were just asking me for plan advice and are so excited for me taking off, but they were just fully taking advantage of us. It was a really traumatic six months. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, it is like what you're saying, like one of those experiences that will end up kind of like drastically shaping how you want to build your life. And like, I think that, I think it's awesome that like, even though, you know, obviously that was a super hard time, like, but I think it's awesome that now you're more grounded in kind of like what you think is going to be the right direction to build for your business and for you as an entrepreneur, because I think a lot of us, you know, and I'm included in this, like we get caught up in the idea of like exposure or like things being like trendy or like things being the right moment. And like, that is a type of growth, of course, but many of us kind of like forget about long-term solutions, long-term building and foundation. And I think like really your definition of success speaks to that. It's not immediate by any means. It's intergenerational even. And I think that says so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And it, it feels beautiful doing like speaking about this right now because I moved into my apartment March 1st. So it's been just over a month and this is the most settled and safe and secure that I've ever felt living in New York. There are no kids running above me upstairs in a pre-war building. There are no, my landlords are not trying to like finesse me and kill, like quite literally kill me. I was lighting candles next to a gas leak for months. I had no idea. Crazy. Um, and now that I'm in this space, I had to convince myself that I deserve it and that it's okay to be in this space. I just feel so, I feel secure, this level of security I've, I haven't, I don't think I've experienced before on top of growing up. So I'm a military brat. I lived in Japan for nine years, but before that, um, so the way military tours work is you move every three years. Mm-hmm. So like a home is just like this thing. That was a window to me looking in books of like, mm-hmm. oh, we were in our family's house in the backyard. Like we moved every three months. And so now that I'm here, I don't see myself leaving and I'm so excited to put down roots and I just feel very, um, it feels like it's mine. Now that she finally has a place she can call her own, Mariah has begun reflecting on other parts of herself, like romance, partnership, and how she expresses vulnerability within those dynamics, as well as their relationship with her work. You mentioned that you were living with the person you were dating at the time, your boyfriend at the time, um, during all of this. And you mentioned to me before that you resonate a lot with Molly, from Insecure. Oh my God, yeah. That's my girl. Played by Yvonne Orji, 
Molly is a main character in Issa Rae's hit HBO series, Insecure. She's Issa's best friend and a badass independent lawyer who often chooses work over her romantic pursuits. If we dive a little bit into your romantic life and kind of like what that's been like when you balance everything else you have going on. I mean, what has that been like for you? Yeah. So when I started, um, my boyfriend at the time, we met in college and we were together for four years. And that was during the entirety from the idea of, I think I want to start a plant Instagram. And he was fully supportive and like, do it. Yes, this is the name. Biggest cheerleader. Um, And I would even argue that I could not have done it without Chris. Um, And so our relationship ended November of last year and we're still really good friends and he is such a huge support and a huge piece of my life that I rely on so much. And and now that I am experiencing not only dating, I'm experiencing dating for the first time during COVID with a mother who got married at 18 and has only been with one person. So I'm like, when I tell you there's no map, (laughs) I have this thing for doing things without a roadmap. I think I'll start a business and like learn how to date during a pandemic. But (laughs) I, it's, it's a really, um, it's liberating because there are no rules, but there, it's also, um, kind of frightening because I'm once again, like in uncharted ocean, uncharted what is that? Waters. What uncharted waters, waters. Uncharted waters. What are the white sayings? Um, I'm in uncharted. And yeah, I'm out in the water and <laughs> I'm trying to stay afloat. But yeah, in reference to Molly from Insecure, I just feel like if I'm being very honest and anyone who's listening won't think that I'm ridiculously cocky or like insanely obsessed with myself. I feel like I've met this level of success that I wanted to mm-hmm. a years back. Like I feel like I'm good. And I can now provide things for myself that years ago or even months ago, I would want a man to get for me. Mm. And so now that I'm able to get and do those things for myself, I'm either like, what do I need you for? The expectations are so high that I'm going to make sure you fail. I'm going to put over all these like hoops for you to jump through. Mm-hmm. Or I'm really vulnerable and I'm like, I just want to lay on someone or like <laughs> just be like held or something. I need to get out of my brain. And so I feel like that's Molly's struggle or like where she's at, where she doesn't need to be with anyone. And that, I don't know. I don't really know what to make of that, but I just, I feel her. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Oh I, God. <laughs> I just feel like the concept of necessity is what we give it, right? Cause like mm-hmm. you can create need in a bunch of different spaces in your life. Like you mentioned financial need that you were hoping, for instance, a partner to provide for. And I think that that's a totally valid thing that a lot of people seek and that's one way of looking at it. But Mm -hmm. like you're saying, Molly, thank you, Molly. Shout out Issa Rae for giving us this metaphor today. I wish I knew Molly's actual, like her name, not character name, but I also the other day found out she went to GW too. So we are tapped in. Yeah. Alumni network. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I think there's like financial need, but then there's also like the other needs. Like, so there's comfort, there's emotional stability, there's validation, there's companionship. Like those are all actually very different when you think about it. Right. And like each is a different place in whatever we seek in somebody else. And yeah, I feel like what you're describing at least sounds like you've satisfied one, you're all good on that. But like, 
how do they fit into these other parts? And like, I don't feel like you've quite figured that out. I haven't. And also because I realized that I wasn't necessarily good at giving that to my previous partner because I was so consumed by my business. Mm. So there were instances where it came down to me staying at WeWork until 8 p.m. or like going out for drinks with my significant other. I so badly want to do both things. And I just found that towards the end of it, I kept choosing the business because it fulfilled me in ways that I hadn't experienced before. I don't know. I just believed and loved in it so much. that, And I felt the same way about the relationship. But now where I am is, I guess at some point, I just felt like I couldn't be that for someone else. And so maybe I was lacking. And now here I am looking to fulfill those other things. But the Mm -hmm. financial part is good. But all I've wanted for the past three years was like financial stability and now I have it. So I'm like, I'm good, right? I don't need anything else. But that's not true. I have to I have to unlearn more. <laughs> well, I mean, right. So it all goes back to like kind of more unlearning. And like I think like another thing I'm hearing at least is this concept of vulnerability, right? Like I hate it- that. What's her <laughs> name? Brene Brown. I got so many words for her. But yeah, shout out to her. <laughs> that's so funny it was instant it was the I hate that <laughs> I hate I literally am getting hives <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um yeah like I feel like vulnerability is this other part of validation we talked about this in an earlier episode um in our second episode with Ada who's um a Chinese American jewelry artist also in New York but she discusses how for instance she worked so hard in her work, like in her art and in her craft Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. or in her life, like in school, all these things and got the validation that she was seeking in those spaces. So kind of like a little bit parallel to what you're saying, like received the level of success that she was looking for in those ways. But then when she took that into a romantic relationship, that level of validation sometimes doesn't correlate with hard work or doesn't correlate with like just bulldozing through and like trying really hard. And like, I think all of those things, you know, kind of come back to like, well, are we really sitting with ourselves and like letting in things as much as we like give? Or are we not even letting ourselves like give from an authentic place because we can't feel what that is? You know what I'm saying? I think like when you work really hard, these are questions that come up because I, I mean, I have the same thing. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. And I just, I equate vulnerability with me slacking because I know the moment I truly like fall for someone or something, it has my undivided attention and I'm going to want to be with that thing and give it my all. And I will neglect my email and phone calls and all of those things that got me to where I am, that got me the stability. Um. And so I fear that level of vulnerability because my job requires me to be, we live in a capitalist society, right? Like I am selling the brand, myself, my hands and soil and my mind, all of this. I am, it's not like I have a brick and mortar and I'm selling plants, right? Like I am the brand. And so something that I struggle with right now is understanding that if I'm going to be vulnerable, I I might lose part of that fake self 
Mm. Um, that's been making me the money, if mm-hmm. we're being very honest. Um, and so not in the sense that like when I'm on social media or communicating with people, I'm not me, but the idea that I would rather choose spending time with someone I care about or just being alone with my own thoughts mm-hmm. uh, versus like doing something that's going to bring me financial stability. I can't even... Again, hives. Like, I can't. (laughs) I can't do it. It's crazy. Instant allergy. (laughs) Instant allergy to vulnerability. Like, yeah. I I get that. And I feel like for me, at least, like, that's one thing that quarantine has taught me a lot is because – I like to work. Like I'm working all the time. Like I've got a job. I've got this job. I've got that job. I've had like 1500 jobs and I'm like just a job really at the end of the day. Like, Mm -hmm. am I even like a person, you know? And like, it's so weird because like some of the happiest times in my life when I look back are the moments where I was so idle, where like I really had this whole summer where I wasn't working and it was me and like my partner and we weren't working and we just had nothing to do and because that we did such memorable shit and like such fun stuff and like it's like I reminisce Mm. on that but then at the same time in my day-to-day I can't get myself to stop you know and like I'm working on it like I'm getting better at that mindfulness but like it's super hard and I think like letting letting ourselves have those moments of rest it's like Mm -hmm. super weird like the fact that we have to make time for that is crazy. But I was going to say, you even just said it, like letting ourselves, like what the hell? Letting <laughs> ourselves rest. Crazy. Letting ourselves rest. Like you deserve rest, girl. You know what? You worked really hard today. Here's a cookie. Here's the bare minimum. Right. It's so crazy when you think about it. But I, I agree the same thing. Like I think about times during quarantine with my partner, we were in Seattle for a little bit and going to do like a picnic in the park and like whale watching and like, oh my God, I was so happy. And I'm not discounting any of my work or any of the accolades that I've collected over the past couple of years. But I think about another high or a high that is like client facing or outward facing the New York Times. The day I was in the New York Times was an amazing day. Mm-hmm. Doesn't It doesn't rank with the day that I went whale watching and disconnected, you know? Right. But like everything that's like visible to everyone else is like, oh my God, you were in Vogue, you're in the Times, you're in all of these things um, and you're working so hard. Um, But when I hear that, I'm just like, oh shit, I am working really hard. Not that I can easily go watch whales or anything again, but yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, again, like, the exhaustion is another thing. And yeah, it definitely hinders our ability to tap in with ourselves, to tap in with other people and to build in those ways. And it's a process, right? Like constantly unlearning that also is a process. If we keep unlearning, we're just going to be so freaking dumb. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for being here today and sharing your story, sharing all your different stories with us and giving us a glimpse into all of the things that you were going through. It was my pleasure. Thank you all so, so much again for listening to episode eight of Saving Face. And a massive thank you to all of you who have been with us since episode one and listened to all of our guests' wonderful stories. We are so excited to wrap up this first season next week with our very own audio engineer, Matt Hong. We hope that you'll join us then. And of course, until then, take care. Saving Face is brought to you by Newfly Magazine. 
We'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Matt Hong, our audio engineer, for making the soundscape for each of our episodes. I'd also like to thank Belinda Mann, who's helped co-produce the series with me, as well as Daniel Fung, who has put together our cover art for each episode. And of course, we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for having the courage and openness to share their stories. Thank you so much for listening.